Well, um, today is Palm Sunday, and so it's my assignment tonight to preach on this long text from Matthew. Um, Palm Sunday is, of course, the Sunday where we Christians celebrate uh, the week of passion of our Lord. It is the whole week that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion, to his crucifixion at the hands of an angry crowd. And because it's impossible, really, to, uh, to reflect on this whole passage in 15 to 20 minutes, I want to enter into the whole narrative by focusing our attention on one particular verse. Chapter 26, verse 45. So let me read this again. Jesus, of course, has just been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after finding the disciples asleep a couple of times, he says this to them. So now verse 45 of chapter 26. He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Well, as I was reflecting on this passage as a postmodern person living in 21st century secular America, I was confronted again, strangely enough. I would have expected this to have been an outdated, antiquated religious issue, but I realized that there is a nagging sense, a nagging feeling haunting me every day, and I think there is a nagging feeling haunting all of us every day. We are guilty. And it assaults us from all sorts of angles. So I wonder if Matthew is in fact strangely relevant for our postmodern, post-Christian times. The other day, my friend Caleb uh, sent me uh, a college humor video. If you haven't seen those, those are on YouTube. They're short spoofs, short uh, comedic videos. And the one he sent me was called The Social Consequences of Everything. So the video shows a girl and a guy talking to one another. Um, the guy asks the girl, well, what are we doing today? She says, we could watch the new Woody Allen movie. He says, eh, he's accused of some pretty bad stuff. The guy then suggests, well, let's watch March Madness then. The girl says, I don't know how I feel about the NCAA exploiting kids, raising their bodies for no pay. Then a couple of friends walk in and ask them about going to lunch. McDonald's? Eh, promotes childhood obesity. Well, what about grilled chicken? Nah, have you seen those pages? Well, what about salad? No, exploiting migrant farmers. They try every option for lunch that they can think of, and they can't come up with a solution for anything for lunch, because anything they do will make them guilty. So finally they settle on sitting in a dark basement, waiting it out, because they don't want to contaminate themselves. One of my friends recently told me that I have a bad case of FOMO. That's fear of missing out, if you don't know. And I think he may be right. So when I heard a couple, well, several days ago that there was a new podcast out called S-Town, I had to listen to it. I had to binge it. Um, and it's fantastic storytelling if you haven't heard it. In fact, the setting is in Woodstock, Alabama, just down the road on the way to Tuscaloosa. And the premise of the whole story is about a man named John B. McLemore. John, um, he's, a, he's an odd man. He emails uh, a reporter in New York a while ago to come investigate Woodstock because he thinks there has been a murder 
and he wants them to come investigate. If you ask John about Woodstock, he thinks everyone is corrupt. Everyone is guilty. People have covered up a murder. The police are guilty. The townspeople are guilty. The whole world is messed up and guilty. And then in one particular episode, the reporter Brian is interviewing Tyler, Tyler Goodson. And Tyler asks Brian a question. He says, do you see me being a bad person? Why? Do you feel like a bad person sometimes? Tyler says, I just want to know what people think of me. People make me out to be, or they treat me like Rodney is all it is. Then Brian comes over the conversation and he explains that Rodney is Tyler's abusive father. And in Tyler's eyes, he's not guilty because he has measured himself against his father. If he's not like his father, he's guilty. Well, so what does college humor and S-Town have to do with any of this? Why are we even talking about it? Guilt. Guilt. The college humor video offers a humorous expose of the social guilt we feel in our postmodern, post-Christian times. And then S-Town explores guilt from a different angle. It's raw and down to earth. And then if you take Tyler, well, he deals with his individual feeling of guilt like we all do. In fact, Tyler's a mirror of all of us. Tyler slides the scale, slides the meter of guilt. He slides the law and judges himself against his abusive father. And so he can deal with his own feeling of guilt. I was reading an article as well this week. In the Hedgehog Review, it's an academic journal, and it's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt by Wilfred McKay. McClay tries to explore, he, he asks himself, why in our postmodern secular times, why do we still have this nagging feeling of guilt? In fact, you would expect that as we push God out of the world, since we no longer need God quite as much, shouldn't the guilt go down? But in fact, McClay observes that we all, in fact, feel guilty. McClay talks about Nietzsche, who observes that if we push God out of the way, especially the Christian God, we should expect not to feel guilty. This is what McClay says. Notwithstanding all claims about our living in a post-Christian world, devoid of censorious public morality, we in fact live in a world that carries around an enormous and growing burden of guilt and yearns, sometimes even demands to be free of it. He goes on, and that burden is always looking for an opportunity to discharge itself. Indeed, it is impossible to exaggerate how many of the deeds of individual men and women can be traced back to the powerful and the inextinguishable need of human beings to feel morally justified, to feel themselves to be right with the world. Put simply, Wilfred McClay says, you'd expect us to feel less guilty in our secular culture, and yet the majority of us feel more and more guilty, and we try everything we do to assuage our guilty consciousness. To try to be free, we try to justify ourselves to relieve the pressure. 
Actually, in fact, in our secular culture, we've lost the capacity to name guilt, to name sin for what it is, to call it out. And so what do we do? We justify ourselves. Just think of back in 2013 when Paula Dean was caught saying something offensive. What happened? And I'm not, I'm not defending what she did or did not say, but what happened before she could even issue a public apology, social media exploded. She was shamed. The network shut her out. The stores discarded her. She was a scapegoat. And we felt like we were finally free of our guilt. We are so haunted by our guilt that we will scapegoat and crucify the wrongdoer to make ourselves feel clean. This is exactly what McClay says. He says this. There is a presence of vast amounts of unacknowledged sin in our culture. A culture full to the brim with its own sense of world-conquering power and agency, but lacking any means of achieving redemption for all the unacknowledged sin that accompanies such power. This is surely a moral crisis in the making. The rituals of scapegoating, of public humiliation and shaming, of multiplying morally impermissible utterances and sentiments, and punishing them with disproportionate severity. They are visibly on the increase in our public life. They are not merely signs of intolerance. No, they are signs of a deeper moral disorder, a malaise that cannot be willed away by the trick of pretending that our guilt does not exist. We feel the guilt, but we don't call it that. We try to pretend it's not there. We can even whisk God away. We can whisk sin away. But we've reached this crisis point where we will scapegoat to make our consciences feel clean. Our guilt is strangely persistent, and yet God's grace is even stranger and more surprising. Matthew's gospel comes in tonight, and it confronts you. It confronts me. In Matthew, we see guilt called out for what it is. He names it. He calls it sin. And only in the light of the innocent king who is crucified, only in his light, do we see sin and guilt for what it is. Our verse again. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The innocent one placed himself into our guilty, sinful hands. And he took our sin and our guilt, and he took it down to the hellish dump it deserves. So a few questions to tease us out for us, just for a few minutes. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now I'm asking myself, why Jesus? Why do you talk about yourself in the third person and call yourself the Son of Man? Why do you speak of yourself uh, uh, as the Son of Man? Well, if we flip back just a few pages to Matthew 16, Jesus himself asks the question. He says to his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then verse 16, Peter gives the correct response. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms what he says, and he says, Blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Matthew wants us to know that this man named Jesus is the Son of Man, he is the Christ, the Anointed One, and he is the Son of the Living God. But if you are paying attention, you're probably asking yourself, like I'm now asking myself, what does that even mean? Son of Man, Christ, Son of the Living God? Well, if I'm familiar with the Old Testament, as soon as I hear Jesus and Peter speak of these titles, I remember Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where Son of Man is used. Daniel has this vision, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. That's a title for God. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And then if you add on Christ, we know it means the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed king. It's a kingly title. The son of God, we might think of Psalm 2, where the king in Psalm 2 calls himself the son of God. So putting all that together, I'm asking myself, when I hear the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, what does that mean? So I take that to mean, taking all that together, Peter says, you, Christ, you are the Son of Man. You are the anointed, divine, promised King we have been waiting for. You are the one to come rescue us. You will receive all authority and dominion and power and glory. You will inherit the nations. This is who Jesus is. And yet, we will be like Peter and not understand the full implications if we don't read on. Because just after Peter says this, Jesus says that the Son of Man, the one to receive all authority, he must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. He must be killed. And Peter tries to stop him and says, No, far be it from you, Lord. And what is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Peter does not understand. And we will not understand who the Son of Man is if we don't understand that this promised divine king is the one who has come to die. Jesus is the innocent, promised king who has come to bear our guilt, our sin, our shame. The Son of Man, the promised divine king, the one to receive all authority, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Matthew has one central character he wants us to see, and this man is Jesus. But in showing us Jesus, Matthew shines a spotlight on all of us. And he shows us who we are. In the light of Jesus, the promised divine king, our hearts are open and we now recognize who we are. Matthew 1.21 says this, um, that Jesus will be his name because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew is telling us about Jesus, the promised divine king, but he is also telling us something about him about me, about all of us. He is acknowledging that you and I are guilty sinners. Now, most of my non-religious friends think this is a liability for Christianity. 
They think that that's actually damaging, that to talk about sin and guilt is sort of putting this burden and it's making us feel ashamed of who we actually are, that it's putting anxiety and guilt onto us. But can I suggest to you that that's to misunderstand the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of guilt? Because frankly, Christianity from the very beginning and the very end talks about the glory of humanity. And it says that Christianity offers a vision of what it means to be human, of what it means to be flourished, of what it means to flourish as humans. It offers us what the good life is. And to be disconnected from Jesus' divine King, that is sin. To distrust Him and to distrust one another. Matthew, in fact, is actually honest about what we all feel. He acknowledges the guilt that college humor recognizes. He acknowledges the guilt that John D. McLemore in S-Town recognizes. He acknowledges the guilt that Wilfred McClay recognizes. He acknowledges it and he calls it for what it is. It is sin. It is guilt. And Matthew will show us in this passage that we have just heard from how sinister, in fact, our sin is. Because by the end of his gospel account, the only one in the story who is righteous, the only righteous character, there will be no one left to defend him by the end. The religious leaders think they are defending God and all that is right. And yet they will seek to destroy him. They will seek to scapegoat him, to defend their cause, to justify themselves. And even the disciples, who we might expect to defend Jesus to the very end, they forsake him just as well. Ironically, the God that they are looking for, the idol, they, they are now, uh, they are crucifying the God that they have been looking for. The righteous God has come to rescue them. The God they all expected. They, they did not know where to find him. This God placed himself where we least expected to find him. And he has surprised us with his grace. God in Jesus Christ has come to suffer and to die. He has come to set us free. The God of Israel has come to be a victim to set all of us free from the guilt that plagues us each and every day. We cannot assuage it. We cannot get rid of it. But God's grace, as Fleming Rutledge says, comes invading our sphere in which we contrive fruitlessly to exonerate ourselves. No more scapegoating. No more self-justifying, because God says no to that way of life. Who is this God of whom you speak, you ask? He is that one, the crucified one, the one who was betrayed into the hands of sinners and crucified for our sakes. Who is the Son of Man? He is the King who is betrayed into the hands of guilty sinners. God in Jesus Christ came to be a scapegoat to end all of our scapegoating of one another. He became a victim to set you and me free. Peter's sermon calls it like it is in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Matthew announces to us good gospel news. He announces us to us good news. He shows us who the Son of Man is. He shows us that he is the king to receive all authority and dominion and power. And he shows us that he is the one who has come to be delivered over, to be trampled upon. Your guilt is there. It is real, says Matthew. And God in Jesus Christ came to set you free of it. This God became a victim to set you free. In the light of Christ, we are stripped naked. And yet God comes in and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Our sin and our guilt are shown for what it is. And yet because of God's intervention, God pronounces over all of us this evening, not guilty. You are free. When you finally get just how surprising this grace is, when you finally get that and let it inwardly digest and hear, 1 Timothy 1.15 will come alive for you. And you will say, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In Jesus Christ, when you are free, you will sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your divine intervention when we were smothered by our guilt, our shame, our sin. Lord, now we ask that you would, by your Spirit, release us from this guilt. By your Spirit, make known Jesus Christ once again to us. Lord, in my mercy, in Christ's name.